Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Hi, I'm Dan Harris. Welcome to ABC News. Oh, ha, ha. Okay, but can I use the microphone? I'm just going to record something. Can you sit quietly for a second? Sure. Okay. Hey, guys, before we start, a quick announcement. By popular demand, we're going to run another meditation challenge. A lot of you have asked us for this. We are, on June 10th, launching what we're calling the Pandemic Resilience Challenge. It's a free 21-day meditation challenge. Uh, The goal here is to help all of us cope with the anxiety, uncertainty, fear, loneliness, boredom, and other super fun emotions we've all been mainlining during this pandemic. Every day, you'll get a short video followed by a free guided meditation to help you establish or to restart your meditation habit. You can do this solo or you can invite your friends and family and see one another's progress. The challenge, as I said, is going to start on June 10th. To join the waitlist and to receive updates, visit 10percent.com slash challenge. That's 10%, one word all spelled out, dot com slash challenge. We'll put a link in the show notes. All right, let's start the show. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. <laughs> that is the trademark <laughs> giggle of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's laughing as his attendants put a microphone on him for this interview. The Dalai Lama, of course, needs very little introduction. He's the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people and a global cultural icon who's been featured in an Apple ad, a Martin Scorsese biopic, and in one of my favorite Bill Murray scenes from Caddyshack. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know. And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going. I wanted to speak to him for obvious reasons. We're in the middle of this rolling dumpster fire with the coronavirus. And I thought His Holiness would have some useful advice about handling anxiety and grief. He, as you will hear, did not disappoint. By way of background, we did this interview, which will be going up on this podcast, plus various ABC News platforms such as Nightline and Good Morning America. We did the interview late Sunday night. It was 10.30 p.m. in New York, where my colleagues and I from Nightline were filming on the 13th floor of the ABC News headquarters. And it was 8 o'clock in the morning in Dharamsala, India. That is where the Dalai Lama lives. They're nine and a half hours ahead. His staffers told us they wanted to do the interview first thing in the morning because that's when His Holiness, who is 84 years old, would be most alert. As it happened, His Holiness actually showed up early for the interview. I had gone downstairs on the orders of my producer, Ode Swache, getting some makeup applied. She said I looked a little sweaty. So when I finally showed up, the Dalai Lama was actually having a chat with my friend Richard Davidson, who was also joining us on this Zoom connection. Good morning. Good morning. Something to you. Just a quick word about Richie, because he's going to play an important part of this podcast. Everybody calls him Richie, by the way, even though his full name is Richard. He's one of America's leading neuroscientists. He runs the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. He's worked really closely with His Holiness for years, studying what meditation does to the brain. 
They're really good friends, and Richie was instrumental in helping me land this interview, so I asked him to join, which he did from his home in Madison. For holiness, my wife came to say hello to you. Hello, Your Holiness. Thank you. Your Holiness, how is your health? Health? (laughs) I think uh, in order to know my health, uh, we have to fight. So wait a minute. Did the Dalai Lama just challenge an eminent neuroscientist to a fight? I think he did. In fact, that was just one of many surprising comments the Dalai Lama made during the course of this interview. Because there are so many interesting moments here and because there's a bunch of stuff that requires a little bit of extra context, I'm going to do something unusual during this podcast. I'll be dropping in once in a while ex post facto to provide a little hand-holding to you, the listener. And at the end, we're actually going to dial up Richie Davidson to do a full post-mortem. That said, back to the Dalai Lama and Richie doing their pre-show banter here. In any way, uh, time always moving. And each minute, person become older and older. But my brain... As you know, quite, quite good. (laughs) Very good. And this is where I finally arrived and joined the conversation. Hello, Your Holiness. Hi. Yes. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this interview. I just wanted to first say thank you. I have interviewed you a couple of times before, and it's had a big impact on my life, in particular, your discussion of wise selfishness has had a real impact on on my inner life. So thank you in advance for doing this. So I'd love to start just by getting a sense of how are you in the middle of this outbreak and how has this situation impacted your day-to-day life? He began by saying that he's spending a lot of time these days thinking about the state of the world. Now today's world, a huge gap, rich and poor, poor people, truly sometimes facing starvation. Very sad when I uh, saw in television some uh, starving people or poor people, sometimes I crying. I think still we keep uh, old thinking Uh, too much thinking, we and they, and do not consider humanity, but my nation, my community, and then fight, killing. And also, unfortunately, my religion, their religion. So these are secondary. We have to think about humanity. Now, this century should be century of Dialogue. Every problem we can solve through dialogue. We must think the humanity, the whole world, like that. As you know, right now, there are so many people on this planet, and including in my country, who are deeply anxious. There is an enormous amount of fear and uncertainty. 
Do you have any advice for how we can manage this anxiety and fear that so many of us feel in the face of this pandemic? Now, America, I always consider a leading nation of free world and a very powerful nation, very rich. Uh, so um, I think America, American, I think since the leading nation of free world and closer relation with free world, like uh, European Union and Asian democratic countries, more closer relation. That also, I think, um, mentally, I think, feel some help. If you uh, think only America and isolate you yourself, then sometimes you feel you yourself something lonely. Even you see one community, you see, think same community, then feel much happier. Uh, your this neighbor, that neighbor, you feel a little bit uh, distrust or fear. Then that family will never be happy and unrealistic. We are social animal. So each individual, each family, their future depends their neighbor families. So now today, east, west, North, south, so economically, and also education and technology. Now, whole world interdependent. So, just a whole world, just one human family. Now, feeling of oneness and come closer. That may be some help. My own experience. When we were in Tibet, we are isolated. When we come to India as a refugee, then feeling, so we are the same human being, then much feel much happier. Hey, Dan, again, um, I'm back to highlight that little bombshell you just heard. The Dalai Lama just said he's happier as a refugee than he was when he was back in Tibet. We're going to circle back to Richie at the end of the show for more on that. But for those of you who don't know the history here, here it is in a nutshell. His Holiness was recognized as the 14th Dalai Lama at the age of two. He was just a teenager in 1950 when the Chinese military moved into Tibet. In 1959, he escaped to neighboring India, where he lives in exile. Since then, he and the Tibetan people have become a global cause celeb. So you think one way to reduce anxiety for the people in in my country would be to shift our thinking away from thinking only about the United States, but towards a vision of us as part of an entire world community? Right. You see, thinking, more realistic thinking, America part of the world. America, not heaven. <laughs> heaven is somewhere. <laughs> that different matter. But human, human place, we are the same. So I think mentally, you see, uh, oneness of one world, 
the dead, I think, make uh, some help, I feel. Your Holiness, I would love to talk a little bit about meditation practices. Meditation has made a big difference in my life personally, and Richie and I have both spent a lot of time trying to educate people about the potential of meditation. As you know, during this pandemic, millions, tens of millions of people are locked down in their homes. They're scared, they're depressed, they're lonely, they're anxious. I wonder, is there a simple meditation practice that you would recommend to people during these times? Me again, just to say that before we play his answer, the meditation the Dalai Lama recommends here did not sound at all simple to me, but we'll let you hear the whole thing and then we'll bring in Richie again at the end of the show to discuss it. Firstly, you see, uh, in morning, the better time, appropriate time is early morning. Uh, see, usually, our mind is mainly or is it a uh, sensorial consciousness. I, ear, smell, like that. So now, try to stop functioning of this uh, sensorial uh, consciousness. Now, stop this sensorial consciousness. Then, at moment, you feel something empty. Then you still remain on that level. Then gradually uh, you gain some experience, something uh, empty. No form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, but some kind of uh, pure and not like deep sleep, but full alert. Meantime, they remain in the very nature of mind itself, not following sensorial uh, mind. That as a beginner for meditation. Then gradually, you see, time, you see, try to get used, you see, the, the, that, that kind of experience. Then, at the beginning, few seconds, 20 seconds, or 30. Then gradually, one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, you can sit on that pureness of mind. That you get a more deeper experience about mind. So that's, I think, the, uh, I think, worthwhile to start meditation. Then, mind, not now, sensorial uh, mind, the deeper mind. Then, you see, focusing some deeper meaning, the meaning of life. And like, Compassion is it through uh, reasoning your own well-being depend on other. So 
taking care about other is actually taking care yourself. The best way to take care of your own happiness, happy life, you should take the uh, surround of the uh, community. So the best way to take care of your own uh, selfish sort of interest, you should take care about other. Selfish, think just yourself, is narrow, foolish, short-sighted. As much as you, you love yourself, take your care. And the, the basis of your own life depends. You should take care more than them. So altruism is this ultimate source of happiness. God creates our brain. So we must utilize our brain properly. I've heard you describe this as wise selfishness. If we're feeling anxious or scared in our current circumstances, from what I hear, you're advising us to turn our attention outward to help other people, and that will in turn make us feel better. Yes, yes. So thinking wisdom, oh, then naturally. So we take care about uh, our sort of farms, flowers, this. You see, not concerning, they also have some kind of consciousness or something. But these, uh, now for example here, a lot of flowers, flower. You see, they, that brings you happy, peace. So therefore, similarly, humanity. Take, you should, you have to take care. So logical, these are logical. I myself, you see, uh, as soon as I wake up, I always think uh, altruism. That really brings inner peace, inner strength. Including uh, troublemaker. Now, in our case, now, for example, the uh, some of the narrow-minded Chinese communists, they create a lot of suffering. But they also are brother or sister. You see, uh, one occasion, this is some uh, problem. Just to clarify something, His Holiness is about to make a reference to a bloody Chinese government crackdown that happened in the Tibetan capital of Lhasa back in 2008 when the people there rose up. As you will hear, His Holiness says during that time, he did a kind of meditation called Tonglen, where you visualize people, breathe in their suffering and then breathe out your compassion. Some sort of uh, demonstrations take place in Lhasa, and then, uh, as a result, suppression. During that period, I visualized some of those uh, decision-makers, visualize them, and take their, through because of visualization, through imagination, you see, take their anger, their suspicion, uh, to myself, and my compassion, forgiveness, this spirit 
give them that kind of meditation. I done. Result, uh, the, the, when I then, you see the uh, situation, actually you see that thinking, that meditation, not helping the situation to, to, to reduce or to peace, but at least my mind remain peace. More concern about, certainly, but no anger, no fear, peace. So, our practice of our compassion is very, very uh, practical, useful. Can you say more about the meditative practice that you just described? In 2008, you said when there was an uprising in Lhasa and the Chinese communists cracked down, you described how you had a practice of breathing in the suffering of the Chinese officials and then breathing out the wish for them to be free from that suffering. Can you describe in greater detail how we could practice that at home in this difficult time? Utilize our intelligence. When you face uh, some problem due to certain, I say, mm, your own member or human, human being, or particularly in your neighbor, to create some problem. Then uh, that problem, uh, if those troublemaker entirely wiped out, if you can, then something different. <laughs> but that's impossible. So you have to live side by side, these troublemaker. So then, or uh, say they live side by side with suspicion, fear, anger, no use. You have to live side by side, then more compassionate mind and some little, little differences, forgiveness, tolerance, like that. Animal cannot do that because no such brain. We have this brain. So some troublemaker, some country, or some sort of people, uh, whether you like it or not, you have to live side by side. So much better with warm-heartedness. Can I ask you a personal question? Yes. Could you tell me what your life is like right now? I know you've been locked down in your compound. What is, how has your life changed during this pandemic? No change. But we actually, you see, uh, some, sometimes uh, each year, a few weeks, sometimes a few months, completely isolate and meditation. So now, not because my volunteer, uh, I last now, you see, a few months, completely isolate in order to protect because of this illness. Huh? That's very good. For me, useful. But a lot of people, uh, you know, usually I give some lecture, uh, some teaching from time to time. Now, no longer, 
that opportunity, but only through this kind of through television, televised, or otherwise, uh, I have now long retreat, very good, and I always look television, at least one hour, two hours like that. Then most of the time, uh, sometimes reading, mainly meditation. I think daily, uh, my meditation about I think oh, four or five hours meditation. Very useful, very helpful. When you meditate for four or five hours, what kind of practices are you doing personally? A reminder that we will unpack some of the technical meditation terms the Dalai Lama uses here with Richie later. But what's most interesting, to me at least, is his use of so-called analytical meditation, where you search for the I, meaning you search in your mind for some core nugget of you. Of course, you, you can't find it. Close your eyes and look for yourself. There's nothing to find. This is, per the Buddhists, a healing exercise because, as you will hear, the sense of an independent self is considered in Buddhism to be the root of all of our difficult emotions. You see, mainly, you see, the analytical meditation or single-pointed meditation, not analyzed, as I mentioned earlier. Then uh, analytical meditation, analyze, analyze. So, for example... As soon as I wake up, uh, I'm thinking the reality, the whole, or the whole centered being, including Buddha, all these are actually, if we try to find out, nothing we can't find. All merely chakpaskare. Conventionally known. Ka. Conventionally known. Oh, kaza. Conventionally renowned. Conventionally, yes, without, uh, as, as a, a quantum physicist, without, you see, thinking deeper level, uh, just appearance, you satisfy, okay. Otherwise, if you uh, go to deeper level, reality, we can't find the Buddha himself. Oh. Uh, we, we cannot find myself. Beside this body, mind, where is I? Usually, you see, we feel I. With that, anger, jealousy, uh, attachment, all this come. So, where is I? This is my body and my mind. Where is I? You can't find Emotion come, uh, anger, why? Oh. Uh, and then uh, I feel some kind of threat. Oh. So at that time, you have strong feeling of I, independent I, self. You see, that feeling is self and I, I, something independent. Oh. That is the basis of all negative emotion. So as soon as I wake up, uh, 
I sort of analyze, where is Buddha? Nothing. Where is I? Nothing. So that, very interesting. And then combined with that, altruism. All centered being, too much self-centered, I, I, I. That causing a lot of problem. So that brings uh, sympathy or concern. So combination, understanding, nothing independent exists. Nothing exists as appears with that understanding and a sense of concern. How ignorant and suffering. So these two things, my main uh, practice. Nothing independently exists. Uh, yet, you see, the, uh, on, the, on the appearances, uh, we develop a lot of destructive emotion. So that's uh, uh, create genuine sense of concern of their well-being. The only way to overcome these are through wisdom, through analytical meditation. Like that. You were talking a little bit earlier about the Chinese government. I was struck, I read an article that you wrote in Time magazine, and you said that you were praying for your brothers and sisters in China. Um, it struck me because you have lived through so much pain yourself. You're a refugee as a consequence of uh, Chinese military action. And now we, China is playing such a controversial role on the world stage. You are still able to generate positive feelings for the Chinese after all of this? Yes, certainly. Chinese, uh, India, China, most populated two nations, over a billion population. India, free country. Democracy, democratic country. China, no democracy. Uh, politically, uh, quite tight control. So totalitarian regime. But this uh, will change. Uh, basic human nature, they try to change uh, through political system. Impossible. <laughs> so... I think China will change. Uh, so in, in any way, uh, I always praying the over one billion Chinese people, you see, should enjoy more freedom and religious freedom, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, sort of friendly sort of feeling here. Uh, that gives me uh, more inner peace, like that. And now here, uh, from time to time, uh, more and more Chinese uh, come here receiving teaching from me. At this point, I asked the Dalai Lama about a recent development in Tibet's relations with the Chinese. We recently passed the 25th anniversary of the disappearance of the Panchen Lama, the Panchen Lama is a key Tibetan spiritual figure who's supposed to play a, a central role 
in choosing the next Dalai Lama. 25 years ago, the current Dalai Lama recognized a young boy as the next Panchen Lama, but then the Chinese government disappeared that little boy and chose their own Panchen Lama. The Chinese government recently announced that um, after 25 years after the boy that you chose and named as the Panchen Lama, they're now saying 25 years later, he's graduated from college and he's working at a job and he doesn't want to be bothered. Did you hear about this? And did you have a reaction to that? I heard. He, I mean, two Panchen Lama. One I recognize. That uh, soon after disappeared. Now later, I was told he got a proper education, like that. Uh, the another pension lama, the official pension lama, according my information, uh, he also you see a uh, very serious sort of a Buddhist practitioner. That's good. So there's a lot of drama here. The stakes are high because clearly the Chinese want to control the choosing of the next Dalai Lama. But the guy who currently has the job told me in this interview that maybe it's time to do away with the institution altogether, depicting it as outdated and feudal. In Tibet case, Lama institution started. (laughs) So that, I think, some connection with feudal system. So that, I think, old way of thinking. So Lama, uh, which institution, like Dalai Lama institution, uh, so there's something, something like a feudal sort of Hasidic system. Now that's gone. So that's why I voluntarily retired political leadership, and then also, you see, uh, in future, Dalai Lama institution, such Dalai Lama institution, whether should uh, keep or not, up to Tibetan people, uh, not necessarily to keep. Now, sometimes I jokingly telling, uh, there's my, me, the 14th Dalai Lama, uh, quite, uh, well-known person. So the institution now sees at that time is good. Then the Dalai Lama institutions they remain something good. The 15th Dalai Lama come, uh, disgrace Dalai Lama. <laughs> then the uh, few, few centuries of the old, or say, the institution. And with disgrace and very bad. So better uh, this institution cease while a a wonderful Dalai Lama. (laughs) 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 I prefer that. (laughs) I know you mentioned before that when you watch the news, sometimes it brings tears to your eyes because you see the suffering that is happening right now in the middle of this virus. I wonder if you have a message to people who right now are feeling overwhelming grief because they've lost somebody. Often when you lose somebody in this virus, you can't even say goodbye. 
or people who are grieving the fact that we've lost a way of life. It seems like the world has changed and it may not go back to the way it was. What would you say to people who are feeling grief right now? Indeed, it's very sad. Uh, but however, it's a dis-physical. It's the basis of different illness. <laughs> uh, so now, uh, uh, so we have to pay more attention and uh, particularly scientists, particular sort of uh, scientists, particular field, is in the already sort of uh, investigation. Uh, what is the cause of antidote? These things. So without losing, I say the courage. Hmm? Sadness should uh, transform determination. More suffering, more determination should not feel helplessness. That's a failure. Like our own cause. We never sort of uh, give up. We try, try. Mainly try to preserve Tibetan ecology, Tibetan cultural knowledge, these things. One fail, again uh, effort, fail, Again, effort. You make one effort fail, then completely lost uh, your determination. That's wrong. Failure, again, uh, try, 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 try. So, regarding this illness, now a number of doctors, nurses, even they're willing to sacrifice their own life. I really appreciate, wonderful, so, uh, without losing our self-confidence, make effort, make effort. That's important. So, eventually, I think this particular sort of illness, I think will, will reduce like that. So then, according the environmentalist, one of my uh, friends, one Chinese about ecology. Uh, he mentioned uh, next few decades, global warming reached such, then world may become desert. <laughs> so then this problem is no longer <laughs> the basis of this illness is our body. The global warming is such re, such sort of how that. Uh, level, the uh, world become desert, uh, then no problem. <laughs> but in any way, you see, should not demoralize, keep determination, make effort. One fail, failure, again, uh, effort, effort. Go like that. So in any way, as many people due to this illness, the suffer, I really feel very sad. Sometimes, according to my own sort of tradition, uh, some prayer, prayer. Uh, so now, uh, 
the basically any suffering, if there is a way to overcome, then no use to discourage, no need discourage. If the problem, no way to overcome, then no use too much worry. So, uh, now this problem, uh, many making effort, I really appreciate and make continuously effort. Then I think certainly uh, can change. You spoke earlier in our conversation about America's role in the world. You have met with every American president, except this president, uh, Donald Trump. I wonder if you could speak with President Trump now about America's role in the world in the midst of this virus. W what would you say to him? When he first sort of expressed America first, uh, I feel little uncomfortable. America, as I mentioned, leading nation of free world. America should think about free world. And through that way, whole world. America, the leading nation of free world. So uh, his sort of thinking, only America, only America, a uh, little bit too small. That's my feeling. Then, uh, a lot of American media, you see, sometimes a lot of problems, a lot, lot of criticisms. <laughs> That's your business. <laughs> so you, you don't want to get involved in American politics, is what you're saying? Oh, yes. Uh, that's, that's your business. I have a lot of problems, so it is sufficient, enough. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Your Holiness, I'm, I'm sensitive to your time. You've been very generous. If, if I may, I just want to ask one last question, and it's a, it's a lighter question. You said that you watch a couple of hours of TV a day, and I know you watch some news, but I'm curious, I can't help myself, do you ever watch something fun? What do you What do you do when you want to purely relax? I found uh, the, uh, the television, some sort of program. It's a lot of sort of complicated or trouble, criticism, something like that. So I uh, uh, sometimes I look animal. You look at animals. Animal. Really, nature. Sometimes you see those uh, uh, animal uh, tigers or liberties, sometimes a little bit uncomfortable. But deers and these, very peaceful. Very peaceful. So I found to look animal. Sometimes they, you see the too much cruel, cruel. Oh, and sometimes I feel sad and some prayer. So that also, you see, helpful as a Buddhist practitioner. You see, 
you appreciate this your life with human being, human brain. Oh, wonderful. Now I should not waste this wonderful brain, wonderful life. Okay. Thank you, Your Holiness. Thank you very much. Thank you. Big thanks again to His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. So much to unpack from that interview. So many questions like his joke about getting into a fight with Richie, his comments about ending the institution of the Dalai Lama, all the questions about what exactly he was driving at in his uh, seemingly complicated recommendation for beginning meditation. We're going to discuss all of that with Richie after this quick break. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Welcome back. As I, as I said, there's a lot to unpack in that conversation with the Dalai Lama. A couple of days afterwards, on Tuesday, I called up Richie to discuss, to refresh your memory, Richie, Richie Davidson, full name, is the founder of the Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. And he's truly a pioneer when it comes to the, the neuroscience around meditation. He's got a long-term relationship with the Dalai Lama. And in fact, we would not have scored that interview were it not for Richie. So in this brief chat, we, we unpack many of the questions raised during that interview. So here we go, Richie Davidson. So there are so many things I want to talk to you about because there were so many points of interest from that interview. <laughs> and some of them actually kind of whizzed by me in the moment. It wasn't until I listened to it again that I realized, oh, wait, he just said something significant there. So I have a million questions for you. But before we dive into that, I, can you just describe, because I know from having spoken to you before that the Dalai Lama has had a massive impact on your life and on your, on your work. So can you just give the audience the basics on that? Certainly. Uh, I first met the Dalai Lama in 1992. And at that time in my career, I was mostly focusing on the brain mechanisms that underlie stress and adversity and depression. And he challenged me then to focus more on the virtuous side. And it was a very significant challenge. And we began to orient more and more of our work in that direction. And over the years, there are 
many ways in which he's impacted the work in a much more nuanced way. So for example, one of the things that he talked about in the interview a couple of days ago is um, the idea that this entity that we think of as me is not what it's really cracked up to be. And it turns out that his incessant inquiry about that and talking to me about that constantly has had a really deep impact on how I think about meditation and also what I think the really important questions are and what the mechanisms are that may lead to some of the most important practical benefits of meditation. So one of the most important practical benefits, particularly at this time in our history, is resilience. And I think that some of the things that he was talking about really are the fundamental mechanisms which enable people to actually learn to become more resilient. And it took me a while to really appreciate that, but I have come to to really deeply appreciate it. And it's affected both my scientific work and also my own personal practice. So, so in neuroscience, can you use fMRI machines to figure out whether there actually is some sort of eye in there or, w- or whether we have some sort of identifiable soul? In some sense, yes. So you can give a person a task, for example, where you present an adjectival descriptor to them, like friendly or um, calm. And you can ask them, to what extent does this word describe yourself? And you can also look to see how a meditator does this compared to a non-meditator, for example. And you can study these networks that are engaged in the brain when we do a task like that and how the organization of those networks may differ in a meditator versus a non-meditator. But I should also mention there's a very famous paper that was published about uh, 10 or 12 years ago, not by us, by a group in France, where they did what scientists call a meta-analysis, where they took research from many different scientists and put it together in a quantitative way and looked at studies of this kind to see where in the brain the self was located. And they actually have a beautiful figure in this paper where they display where the hotspot was in each of these studies. And the finding from this meta-analysis is revealing. What they found is that this hotspot was all over the place. It was not in any specific location. And um, this is something which in many ways is very consistent with, I think, the Buddhist view, which is that there is no single location for the self, so to speak. But it really depends. It depends on what the context is. It depends on what else um, uh, a person may be thinking. It depends on their history and so on and so forth. That all was fascinating. And I also want to make sure that I don't give short shrift to the relationship between you and uh, the Dalai Lama, because before the that pivotal conversation that you had with His Holiness, where he challenged you to stop looking at our sort of 
pathologies and start looking at our uh, potential for uh, positive emotions, you were a long time but closeted meditator. So this was something you were really interested in, but you didn't want to tell anybody in your field about it because you thought it would be embarrassing. So this was actually kind of a leap you took when you pivoted your career in this way. Uh, it really was. It was a a wake-up call. You know, by 1992, I was a tenured full professor at a major institution, and I um, really made a very conscious decision, and I remember kind of wrestling with myself about it, to what extent should I come out of the closet? Because in 1992, the uh, scientific community was not particularly receptive to this. I mean, they were even less receptive when I first began, but still in 1992, they were not receptive. And, you know, we've all been taught in graduate school, when I was going to graduate school, that we look at a person and we try to find out what's wrong with them. And what the Dalai Lama was asking me to do is look at a person and find out what's right about them. Um, it really is a completely different orientation. And so... Uh, it did take a leap of faith. And I i mean, one of the things that I feel when I'm with the Dalai Lama is a real sense of security and not an arrogant confidence, but a kind of quiet confidence that uh, I just felt that this was a, a direction that I needed to pursue. And it didn't matter to me what some colleagues may think. And you know, I was just going to listen to my own heart and my inner voice and make this pivot. And I, I think it's worth pointing out because I'm not sure a lot of people understand that this this man who, you know, certainly looks like and is I think legitimately seen as a religious figure, or the, the spiritual leader of the Tibetan people, has had a significant impact on modern science with you kind of as his contemplative cat's paw and other scientists, of course, where, you know, he kicked off in many ways this scientific endeavor, this whole field that's now known as contemplative neuroscience, where we you look at uh, the brains and the rest of the bodies of meditators and find out what's happening as a result of this practice. That has legitimized this practice and allowed for uh, skeptical people like me to do it and to popularize it and change the lives of millions and millions of people. And so it would be easy to, you know, write him off as, you know, adorable or whatever, but actually he's had a pretty significant impact in this field of science and by extension culture. I think he has. And one of the great honors in my life has been the opportunity. I've been in a position where I can select major scientists and uh, and invite them to participate in dialogues with the Dalai Lama, either at his residence in Dharamsala or sometimes here in the West. You know, I've done that with the conviction that when a person has an opportunity to be with His Holiness in person, that they will be irrevocably affected in a way that will potentially have lasting impact. And if we can bring the top scientists in the world in the presence of His Holiness, this can have multiplicative effects in many realms of science. Let me uh, dive into some of the moments from the interview. I didn't hear this because I was out of the room and I came in late. 
Bode, my producer, had sent me downstairs to get makeup. And so when I walked in, you got you and the Dalai Lama were already chatting. And it was only after I listened back to it, there was a, a very interesting moment that displays his sense of humor, which is not what you would think it would be, just based on appearances. You said, how's your health? And he said something to the effect of, well, the only way for us to know would be if we had a fight. And I was, and I'm like, did did the Dalai Lama just challenge Richie to a fight? I think that's what I heard. Uh, so wh- what do you make of that kind of joking on his part? You know, he's very playful. He's also competitive. You know, I think he he has a kind of, again, a quiet pride and confidence in his ability to prepare for things. And, you know, he's an extraordinary student and can devote just amazing amounts of effort to something he decides is important. I think it's, uh, you know, it's a reflection of that combination of playfulness and confidence. But, but it, you know, it showed up later at another part in the interview when he was talking about, you know, he started talking about how sad he was on behalf of the people who are suffering in this pandemic. And then he pivoted to talk about global warming. And he said, yeah, there was a Chinese ecologist who told me that the whole planet could turn into a desert. So, you know, then then we wouldn't be able to live. And so then it would, you know, this whole discussion about a virus would be sort of tangential. And he's laughing as he's saying this. And I, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think I know where he's going with it, but it's a little hard to compute. What, what do you what do you make of that? Well, I would say that he takes the really long view. You know, um, in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, we know of this concept of impermanence. Everything is impermanent. But there's really one quality that's not impermanent, which is awareness. It, it is. Um, it, it doesn't have an end and it doesn't have a beginning. It just, it, it, it's continuous according to their beliefs. And so, you know, according to that long view and in the Tibetan tradition, there are times when civilization has really flourished and other times when it's not. And there's this cyclical kind of existence. And so I think that His Holiness really sees it that way, that he can see this pandemic. On the one hand, there's the immediate tragedy. And, you know, as he was describing to us in the interview, he was actually crying at times watching images on television. And I totally believe that. I've seen him do that. But on the other hand, you know, in the kind of cosmic scheme of things, this is going to be a little blip. And he can see that as well. So interesting, right? So in the, hey, let's have a fight joke, that's a mixture of playfulness and competitiveness, maybe. And in this case, where he pivots in within the space of a paragraph between projecting what seems to me to be utterly uncontrived compassion for the people who are suffering, and then sort of laughing as he talks about the, you know, potential obliteration of human civilization, that, from what I'm hearing from you, is a mixture of playfulness and sort of a deep, deep view of our place in geological time. Yeah, almost cosmic time, you might say. But yes, yes. And I also think there's one other element here, which is worth pointing out, particularly for listeners who are attracted to meditation. 
And that is that one of the things that uh, I've noticed about the Dalai Lama, you know, I've in, in normal times, I typically see him three or four times a year. We've known each other for 25 years. So, you know, I've been with him a lot of times and I, I consider myself a lifelong student of emotion. It's one of the areas that I study a lot. And one of the things that is so extraordinary about the Dalai Lama is the dynamic range of his emotion. He has a greater dynamic range of emotion than any other human being I've ever encountered. And by that, I mean, he can go from a state of crying to laughter just like that. And it's not inappropriate. It's just responding to what is appropriate right in the moment, but there's no holding on when it's not appropriate. There's no lingering. And um, you see that in a, in a young baby. So for those of you out there who are parents, you've seen it in your kids. But it's something that virtually all of us lose as we develop into adults. But the Dalai Lama has that, but I think he has that with real wisdom. And it's so unusual. That's an, an incredible analysis on your part. So I'm really glad we're doing this debrief together There's because there's so much from the interview I want to talk about. Here's another moment. I don't know if you caught this, but he was talking about how when he lived in Tibet, he was isolated. And then when he got, when he left in, and became a refugee in India, he actually said that his life became happier. That was surprising to me. Yeah, I mean, he's, um, I've heard him say that before in, in slightly different ways, but essentially the same point. I think that he's genuinely appreciative of the opportunity that being in exile has provided to benefit more human beings. I think he clearly sees that if he remained in Tibet, uh, he would not have had the opportunity to have such extended benefit really across the planet in a way that he has had since he's been in exile. And I, I think he reflects on that every day. And while it's a, a poignant situation and you know not necessarily one that he would have chosen, I think he's deeply grateful for what it has enabled. Hmm. So here's another moment I want to talk about. Um, I asked him can you give me a meditation practice that regular people can do? And I said something simple. And he launched into a description of a meditation practice. You know, I'm not an expert in meditation, but I've, you know, written a few books about it and I do a reasonable amount. I didn't understand what he was talking about. I mean, I kind of understood, but I didn't really understand. And, you know, he's talking about stopping your sensorial consciousness, no form, no sound. Um, and then he said, and I did understand the second part, which was to switch to contemplating compassion. But can you unpack any of that? That first part was uh, pure Dzogchen, uh, where he was really describing resting in the nature of mind completely. Can I stop you for a second? Okay, first of all, can you define Dzogchen? Uh, it's D-Z-O-G-C-H-E-N. Dzogchen is, I believe, one way you spell it. Uh, based on the Tibetan pronunciation. It's a form can, of can meditation. Sort of and I, I should just sort of preface this by saying that I'm, you know, a rank beginner in this area. And so uh, whatever I can say 
is based on extremely limited experience. But having said that, it is a style of practice. I mean, I, I believe that the word literally means the great perfection in Tibetan, and it is a particular style of meditation practice, which is said to enable a person to rest in the primordial basic nature of the mind, that this is the mind in its pristine, luminous, vast, natural state, which is beyond concepts and beyond subject and object. And um, His Holiness, although that's not his main form of practice, um, you know, I, I think if you listen to the interview, I remember him saying, although we can verify this, but he said something like, you know, if you're starting out to practice, this may be a good form of practice to do if you're starting out, which is kind of amazing to me. That, that's, uh, you know, he's, he's introducing this as a kind of beginning practice. Um, but this is a practice that I've done some over the last 10 years. And uh, it's particularly taught in the Kagyu and Nyingma traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. It is a practice which is said to be passed down by a very um, specific oral tradition. So it's a kind of practice where you actually receive very specific instructions from a lineage holder who has been part of a continuous unbroken lineage where you are introduced by this lineage holder to the actual nature of your mind in a kind of awakening experience where you taste in a limited way what this kind of state actually is. And as you taste it, you become a little bit more familiar with it. And the way I liken it is, you know, I'm sure many um, listeners have seen perceptual illusions, like an illusion with where you can see it in one case as a vase and in another case as a profile of a face. And when you first see one of these illusions, sometimes it's hard to see the opposite illusion. You know, you see it in one way and you can't see it in the other way. But once you've seen it the other way a few times, it becomes easier to switch into that other mode. And resting in the nature of mind is similar. Once you begin to get more and more familiar, you can drop into it more easily. Um, and I think His Holiness, well, that's what he was referring to in, in terms of one style of meditation. I mean, I think he talked about three styles. One was that, another was a specific kind of compassion practice, which was Tomlin. And the third was analytic meditation, which is really using reasoning to inquire about the nature of the self, for example, or the nature of the mind. And using reasoning, we can actually arrive at an insight about the basic nature of our mind. Yeah, there was a lot there. Not exactly a guided um, meditation in the way that we're accustomed to. And one of the other things to point out is that, you know, Tibetan teachers tend to be very different than Western Buddhist teachers in how they teach. And so a Tibetan teacher typically won't actually lead you in a meditation. What they'll do is they'll give you some high level instructions and they'll basically say, go off and practice for a few months 
and then come back and tell me about your experience. But they're not going to sit there with you as you kind of struggle with your own mind. Um, they'll just tell you to go off and practice. You know, here's the high level of instruction and then discover the rest of it for yourself in your own experience and then come back and you can report on it. Let's just say a word uh, about Tong Len, because I think of all of the forms of meditation he talked about, this is the one that people at home could probably most easily do. So could you describe that practice in case somebody wants to actually do this in their own life? Sure. And again, you know, I don't really consider myself qualified to teach a practice like this, but what the practice entails is to essentially, um, you can do this by envisioning a particular person. And if they're suffering or they have some kind of disturbance or problem, when you inhale, you can envision inhaling their difficulty whatever that difficulty may be, you take it into your, your own self. And then on the out-breath, you are transforming that difficulty and uh, you are wishing them ease. You're wishing them to be relieved of their difficulty, to be relieved of their suffering. So on each in-breath, you keep taking in the problem. And on the out-breath, you're giving compassion, you're giving love, you might be wishing them to be happy, and you do this in that kind of way. And you can move on to different people, to different categories of people. It often, I think, is very helpful when you're doing this practice to start with a loved one where you have a kind of uncomplicated, close relationship. It could be a family member, it could be a very close friend, it could even be a pet and you do this, and then you can move on to other categories of people. And you don't have to breathe in a special way. You breathe as you're breathing and do the envisioning on the natural in-breath and out-breath. Exactly. So on this subject of compassion, it's the through line of everything, pretty much, that the Dalai Lama talks about. What kind of evidence have you found to support that compassion has beneficial impacts, both as a meditation practice and as a way of being in the world? So as a meditation practice, there is a growing body of evidence that suggests, first of all, that compassion practice, for example, the kind of practice that we just discussed, Tan Len, has effects on the brain and on the body that are different than a mindfulness practice. And so that's the first thing to know is that the scientific research shows that the effects are not the same. And this is something helpful to appreciate in general, that not all forms of meditation are going to produce the same effect. And I often say that in that way, meditation is kind of like the word sports. We know that there are many different kinds of sports and they're going to have somewhat different effects on the body. So that's the first point. The second is that Data show that even really brief amount of practice in people who've never meditated before, and I'm talking now about as little as a total of seven hours of practice over the course of several weeks, say a half hour a day for two weeks, is sufficient to produce a measurable change in the brain and a measurable change in behavior. And actually, data show that on certain kinds of objective behavioral tasks, 
you can produce a change in as little as eight minutes. And so actually the data show you can produce changes uh, on objective measures of behavior in the brain more quickly with compassion practices than you can with mindfulness practices. But when you, you talk about objective behavior, you're talking about you test whether somebody's willing to display altruism in a real world situation after having done some meditation like this? Yes. So that's one kind of behavioral task that's been used in the lab. So, you know, a kind of scenario that social psychologists like to construct is you invite a person to come in for an experiment. Uh, they're told to sit down and fill out a few questionnaires in a waiting room and um, there's just one chair in the waiting room, and they're filling out the questionnaires, and then someone else comes in who they believe is another participant, and they come in on crutches. And the question is, are you willing to give up your chair for this person on crutches, and how quickly do you give up your chair for this person on crutches? That's a kind of experiment that's actually been done where the benefits of compassion practice have been demonstrated. And you talked about it having noticeable effects in the brain. I mean, pretty much anything I do is going to change my brain, right? If I learn how to play violin, it's going to change my brain. So are the changes to the brain the kind of changes that I would want? Are they, are they going to improve my life if I do this practice? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And, and actually, the point you make is extremely important and true. That is, anything that you do, um, any kind of regular activity in which you engage will change your brain. And so just to make the broader point here, and then we'll talk about the specifics, the invitation in all of this work is that we can actually take more responsibility for changing our brains in a positive direction rather than leaving willy-nilly to the forces around us to change our brain. And so moving specifically to, to the question about what is it that's changing we see that at the beginning stages of practice, there are networks in the brain that are important for positive emotion that are activated. There's a region of the brain called the ventral striatum, which is very important in positive emotion. And um, that's an area that gets activated by compassion practices. There's also a second region that is called the temporoparietal junction. It's kind of in the back of the head. And, uh, this is an area that's been found to be very important for perspective taking. So if I ask you to sort of put yourself in the shoes of another person, when we use that kind of metaphor, taking the perspective of another engages this area of the brain. And that's another area that gets strengthened by these kinds of compassion practices. So I would say that those are things that are good for you. And we also know that Changes occur in the body that certainly are good for you. Um, compassion practice is anti-inflammatory. It actually decreases molecules in the body that we know are important in producing inflammation. And we know that many chronic illnesses involve systemic inflammation. Even neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's involves inflammation in the brain. And there's more and more work to suggest that these kinds of compassion practices decrease these inflammatory molecules. Final question for you about 
the interview with the Dalai Lama is that there was a moment where he, we were talking about the Panchen Lama and the whole controversy about this kid who disappeared 25 years ago, now a man. And the Dalai Lama kind of wrapped it up by saying, well, you know, maybe we don't need any more Dalai Lamas. Now, I, I believe he said that before, but it's still pretty striking to hear him say, you know, maybe I should be the last. Yeah, I mean, it's quite extraordinary to to hear that. It, you know, I've heard it before, too, but it's um, the fact that he said this in a venue that he knows will be shown to millions of people was quite extraordinary. Uh, my view of this is that it is um, very much wrapped up in the current political situation. And uh, I think that um, he is concerned about China appointing the next Dalai Lama. And one way to resolve that is by declaring that the lineage will end with him. There are certainly other strategies. And I've also heard him say on several prior occasions that at some point, either in his 90s or soon before he dies, whichever comes first, he will make a public announcement about the future of the lineage. Hmm. Rich, I just want to say, first of all, it's been so useful and interesting to be able to unpack this interview with you so soon after having done it. So thank you for that. And thank you even more because you're the sine qua non of the interview. I mean, we wouldn't have happened without you. So I'm just super grateful to you for making it happen. Well, I'm, I really appreciate the kind words and I also want to just say I, I deeply, deeply respect and appreciate all you're doing. And I know that there are many people in this world who are trying meditation for the first time because of you. And um, I just want to express my deepest gratitude because I think you are serving in such an important role today. And um, you are serving as this very important translator. And now is a more important time than ever. So thank you. Thanks. I appreciate that. Big thanks to Richie and his team at the Center for Healthy Minds for helping make this happen. And of course, thank you to the Dalai Lama and his whole team. If you like this episode, please share it widely. We could use a little viral sanity these days. And uh, if you like the show in general, please subscribe, rate us, et cetera, et cetera. I know hosts make that ask all the time, but actually makes a huge difference. So do us a solid if you can. A few more shout outs before I go here. Big thanks to my colleagues at ABC News who worked really hard on all of this, most especially Ode Soiché from Nightline. Also, of course, the mighty TPH team. Uh, Samuel Johns is our producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Shashik of Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of input and wisdom and guidance uh, from TPH colleagues such as Jen Poyant, who worked really hard on this episode, also Ben Rubin and Nate Toby. And, of course, big thanks to the ABC News radio folks, without whom none of this would happen, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you soon. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey.
For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.